and welcome to Streetwise, the podcast from the pitch out of Kansas City. I am your host, Brock Wilbur. I am also the editor-in-chief of the Pitch Podcast. How are you out there? Me, I uh, had a weekend panic attack because the cat had to go to the vet. We have three cats and one dog now. The dog's the new addition. Uh, Kimball is the oldest cat, uh, been with us for five years. Uh, my wife actually uh, adopted Kimball, a rescue off the streets of Los Angeles, um, a few days before she met me because she was lonely. Uh, and uh, I, I used to joke early in our relationship, I wish I would have uh, reached out to take you on a date uh, two or three days earlier because I would not have to deal with this monster that hates uh, me and you and life itself. Uh, I've changed my mind. Now I love Kimball. Kimball's a wonderful part of the family. Uh, Kimball is named after Dr. Richard Kimball, uh, who is the lead actor in, uh, who is the the main character in The Fugitive, uh, because my wife, a 36-year-old woman, uh, her favorite movie remains Harrison Ford's The Fugitive. Uh, So our, our girl cat, is Dr. Kitty Kimball from The Fugitive. Uh, sometimes uh, we make the vet write down the whole name. We're fun like that. We're very fun, fun, normal people to be around all of the time. Um, <laughs> so uh, we've been fairly lucky uh, over the, the the couple of years here that we've had multiple pets in that no one has needed to go for a trip to the vet, uh, minus getting fixed or the regular checkups. No one's had any sort of like real terrible emergency situation. And then um, we didn't see Kimball for most of a week there. Uh, And then one morning she turned up and was just uh, screaming and crying. And was like, what's wrong with the cat? And we looked at her feet and she had these weird, really scary infections. Didn't know what they were. It was just like, "I, I don't... I don't know anything about cat diseases, whatever that is. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it so much. It was on a Sunday <laughs> and uh, I was just like, uh, we have to take her to the vet immediately. We have to find an emergency vet that's open on a Sunday night. And like, I have medical problems with me that I will uh, notice and be like, I should take that to a doctor, but then I won't for months on end. Uh, it turns out when it is, uh, when it involves one of my pets, I would rather uh, break the glass on the front of the building by ramming my car into it so I can get the pet in there faster. Uh, Anyway, got to the vet and the vet uh, was like, hey, um, she's got some infected, uh, some infected toenails. Uh, The toenails grew out a little too long, uh, got into probably some some cat litter or something. Uh, They got infected and and they looked real bad. So they they had to knock her out for a day. Uh, and gave her some minor surgery and then gave her back to us. And uh, boy, for three days, we had the highest animal I've ever seen in my life. Just one, 100% pupils, nothing but pupils. Uh, both infections were on the right side of her body, on, on the right front paw and the right rear paw. So that was the side of her body that was numb. So she was panicked and would suddenly like wake up, realize that she didn't know where she was and, and worry, and then try to run away. But... Um, only one side of her body works, so she kind of just ran in these little circles and then would fall over on her side. Uh, it is, it was really sad and, and and hurtful in the moment, and now is really funny to think about just watching watching that little rowboat go in circles uh, before capsizing. Um, anyway, she's uh, she's recovering, uh, and it's it's one of those things that I uh, I don't know how quickly we do. Uh, we we still carry a such concern and every time she makes any sound or, or moves in any way we're like is she okay what's what's up we're 
we are overbearing helicopter parents on this one. Um, <laughs> anyway, it's 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 mostly funny because uh, I, what I've realized from this is that uh, the wife and I have no idea what anything costs at a vet. Uh, we obviously couldn't even like Google whatever the disease was that she had because we had no idea what was going on with her. We couldn't like price check, and we weren't going to wait for the next day to like go somewhere to to get a better price. So um, what I'm learning from everything about pets is that uh, you take them in to the vet, they come out, and then the vet says a number, and you say, yep, because uh, uh, Kimball had a day's worth of care, surgery, all this stuff, uh, came out, and the, the vet was like, yeah, that's uh, $250, and I would have, it was like, sure, uh, because uh would have been uh, equally unsurprised if it had been $50 or $1,000. I have no idea. It is just like anything that has happened with me in a hospital before, like, you get out, and you're like, I don't know, that was a hundred bucks or it's $50,000 or some random number in between that we're just, I I don't know, 3K? Is that good? Does that feel good? It it feels like I'm supposed to barter in this situation, but what I'm learning is that part of uh, pet ownership is that you just don't know. You're going to pay whatever it takes for for your little family member to be okay. Uh, At the end of the day, you'll figure the rest out. So um, yeah, I don't know. Cat is feeling better. Uh, is less high and uh, is reacclimating to the world. Out 250 bucks. Need to start clipping those toenails a little better. Um, you know what? I'm 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 fine with all that. So anyway, we have a fun episode of the show here today. Um, we have an interview with a judge who has written a book about the Lindbergh baby kidnapping. Uh, that's uh, just wild to read. Uh, but uh, but first of all, Nick's music corner. Hello, I'm Nick Spasic, music editor for The Pitch, here with this week's local music recommendation. After nearly a decade of waiting, Topeka Lawrence indie rap act Ebony Tusk's debut full-length, Heal Thyself, will finally see release on November 6, courtesy of Kansas City label High Dive Records. Even when the group released their HDF single back in February, I was still wondering if this would ever actually be something I could hold in my hands. Well, it showed up in the mail today, and I can state for the record that it is real and it is worth the wait. Fans of experimental, confrontational music that pushes the boundaries of the genre, such as clipping, will find a lot to encounter in this album, which features guest spots from Connie Franco, Stick Figga, IK, and others. The first single off the album proper, Chuck D's, sets the tone right from the start, and you can hear it right now. Pre-order the album at highdiverecords.bandcamp.com. Staring directly at you through looted sets of binoculars Keep it knowing if then be forced to acknowledge it Not enough to a shark with a jaw for the overconfidence, huh? My whole team doing numbers hey! My homeboys, no creep, only coming All day, Chuck D's on the corner You did it, I've done it, you got it, I want it, I want it My 
when Jesus peace and crosses tatted on the fingers. Hope for righteous teachers, poster with no top Adidas. It's nothing casual about this underground completed. Dots effects is holding down a dozen times repeated. Often blended bumper crops that burst his tortured lungs. Sip of elixir set a fire to his spoken tongue. You stunk a privilege, rival of a fortune sumble, but he wouldn't give a compromise to be the chosen one. To have been born within a world in which you could evolve. And to have seen a glimpse beyond these four polluted walls. And to demand a man is constant proving you belong. Bandying about a stack of dollars you would groom the flunk. You wanna gamble with them bulls, we can roll the dice. We'll serve a matador as portion with a fork and knife. Siphon off the skin and bones as if you hold the right. Believe me when I say that it appears you can't afford the price. 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 Hey! My homeboy, Snow Creek, on the corner. Oh, come on! All day, Chuck D's on the corner. You did it, I done it, you got it, I want it, I want it! My whole team about to bubble. My homeboys, Chuck D's on the corner. All day, slow creep on the come up. You did it, I done it, you got it, I want it, I want it. have a reading from last month's magazine presented by our friend Jason from Stolen Dress Entertainment. Don't breathe. Haunted houses have devious designs to outspook a murder virus by Abby Higginbotham, Allison Harris, Lucia Verzola, photos by Travis Young. The spookiest time of the year is about to get a bit more spine tingling for Kansas City thanks to the growing presence of COVID-19. In a city with nearly 35,000 total COVID cases reported since last March, Halloween is going to be unrecognizable from any previous iteration. Instead of canceling most events, many haunted productions plan to plow ahead with social distanced scares. Halloween is a massive industry for Kansas City, so businesses are moving to hyper-sanitized haunted houses and masked-up trick-or-treaters. All scares aside, what could possibly be more frightening than a global pandemic? A chainsaw, real close to your face. Thought that answer would be obvious. Unfortunately, some local staples will not be opening at all this October. Halloween Haunt at Worlds of Fun has been canceled for 2020, and the park will not reopen until 2021. Full Moon Productions chose not to open the Macabre Cinema or the Chambers of Edgar Allan Poe for the Halloween season. However, the majority of Casey Haunted attractions will be ready for spooks like any other year, just with extra precautions. Amber Arnett Bequeath, the Queen of Haunts, grew up in the haunted house industry. Her family created and founded The Edge of Hell in 1975 when she was five years old. Nearly 50 years later, she is now the vice president of Full Moon Productions, the company that runs The Edge of Hell, The Beast, The Chambers of Edgar Allan Poe, and Macabre's Cinema. Arnett Bequeath put out a press release on September 8th regarding how they will be reopening Kansas City's famous West Bottoms haunted houses this season. We assessed whether we should open or not. We know more than ever people need an outlet to break out of the doldrums, and that brings joy. It's funny how staged scaring does that. Arnett Bequeath says, We've taken so many precautions, such as requiring customers to wear masks, taking temperatures, hand sanitation, and meeting with city and health officials. As a national spokesperson for the haunt industry across the country, Arnett Bequeath is confident that care has been put into handling how best to open this season. She acknowledged that the decision to attend haunted attractions this year is one that individuals must decide for themselves. 
It is the public's responsibility to self-distance themselves. The rules are put out there by our government officials, and we're all meeting those. But everyone needs to be responsible for themselves. You sign a waiver saying that you will do so before you enter. It comes down to listening to rules, keeping ourselves safe and kind, but in the haunted attractions. Arnett Bequeath continues, So some people cry, scream, cough, crawl, pee their pants, or run. So you know it's the same thing. You may have to stop and be a little bit patient and not run into someone else, or of course, we're taking your temperature. There's sanitizing stations, but these are all the things in our normal world now. She continued, We're a very safe, family-oriented environment about celebrating a holiday that's all about becoming something that you're not every day. And that's what we hope to continue to share as we embark on the 30th year of The Beast, which is unbelievable. We do continue to face our own fears and provide an amazing, safe environment, but at the same time, we're all responsible for our own choices. Arnett Bequeath sees another difficulty that comes with 2020's changes, navigating how to accomplish a sense of team camaraderie between the attraction's actors. We normally have food time together where we feed our actors. They're talking about the different aspects of the show. We're going over safety. We have a pre-meeting. Then they go into makeup. Then they go into costume. And right now, the change will be they will be responsible for makeup and costume. They'll have a pre-meeting, but social distance. And their eating time, we will still provide for them, because for a lot of them, this is part-time work, and they come straight from work, especially on a Friday night to be here. So they will be served in a very formal way with social distance, tables, and things like that. On September 9th, Full Moon held open auditions for The Beast and The Edge of Hell, the two of four attractions chosen to open this season. It was the first time they ever had to face a decision of opening options in the 45-plus years of continuous Edge of Hell runs making it the oldest commercial haunted attraction in the United States. Though Full Moon has downsized its team compared to their usual number of employees needed when all four attractions are open, many extra workers are essential to keep even one haunted house up and running. Just to get in the door is going to take about 12 people. It's a huge staff just to make sure everything is taken care of, says Arnett Bequeath. The presence of the coronavirus didn't stop veterans and newcomers from attending the audition to work here. Emma Turley showed up to audition day at The Beast in full-body devil makeup she created herself. Currently enrolled in cosmetology school, she sees working at the haunted houses as a way to help her accomplish her dream of becoming a special effects artist. Though her family was supportive of her decision to audition, Turley is worried about the possibility of exposing her family to the virus if she were to work at a haunted house. Jennifer Kolb, who has worked at the West Bottoms as a street character for 17 years, is less concerned about what playing her part might threaten, as she works in the medical field during the day. This year, auditionees were faced with the challenge of incorporating a mask into their costume. Kolb accomplished this by hand-making a prosthetic out of liquid latex, paper towel, and toilet paper that she detailed with paint and fake blood, and then attached to her fabric mask with wiring from Christmas tree ornaments. Her efforts came together to create her character's mouth as the main jester of the attraction. Harry Lewitzow, known in costume as Ratman, has played almost every character at the Edge of Hell over the 35 years he has been in the business. He met his wife there, and all his children have worked there as well. Rat Brat, my second youngest daughter, has been in the show lately and loves the rats like I do. Lewitzow feels it is important for both visitors and workers like himself that the attractions open this season. We see people go through year after year who say the release from their haunt visit was just what they needed. Maybe it is the day's stress or a bad month for them. We don't ask, but as we say, their screams and laughter are our applause. When you see the joy of scaring, you get hooked into working the haunts. With the precautions set in place for actors and visitors alike, Luitzau isn't concerned about the virus. It would be a bummer if I don't pass the temperature check, because I won't be able to work, but I get it. 
The live rats he works with every year scare him more than COVID-19, he says. It keeps me on my toes because I never know if they're going to bite me or not. If you are looking for something more historical that can still give you the chills, turn to the real haunted houses of Kansas City. For those less interested in jump scares and interactive Halloween attractions, various historical establishments are hosting haunted ghost tours this season, with new rules in place. The Warnall Major House Museum offers ghost tours in the fall that bring in hundreds every year. Sarah Bader King, the curator and director of the public programming and events, gave a little background on the home. The museum is a nonprofit organization that manages two of Kansas City's most historic structures, the John Warnall House at 6115 Warnall Road and the Major's House on 8201 State Line Road. We offer ghost tours and paranormal investigations of the Warnall House, often rumored to be one of the most haunted Kansas City locations, Bader King says. Because the house brings in so many customers each season, tour planning takes a large part of the year to prepare. However, the museum did not predict what 2020 would bring. Bader King explained that they didn't know what reopening would look like, if even possible. We didn't know what to expect. We were closed from March until mid-May. We expected to be back in the office by April, but we feel confident that we've made the changes to keep people safe at our programs and tours. The museum has made many changes in order to keep their patrons safe. They require all customers to wear masks and have removed all of the museum's touchable elements. They have also limited the number of people allowed in the museum for public tours, shortening the duration of tours to ensure visitors can maintain six feet of distance. Everything seems to be changing daily. We are always aware of the possibility of shutting down. We will deal with that if it comes, Bader King states. Our main concern is keeping everyone safe. As for our ghost tours, we will offer full refunds for tickets if we decide we can't hold the event safely and have to cancel. Wernall Majors Museum remains optimistic that they have done their part to ensure visitors enjoy themselves. Because many people look forward to the ghost tours every year, it's important to the staff that they keep the event going rain or shine. Community and traditions can bring us closer together even when we are physically separated, says Bader King. Another historical but slightly less scary site to visit this Halloween is the St. Joseph Museum, home to the Glore Psychiatric Museum, a popular site associated with paranormal groups in the area. The museum was founded in 1968 by occupational therapist George Glore, who maintained the original exhibits that are still on display today. They were first created to be shown at an open house on mental health awareness. The museum always hosts the annual Spend the Night at the Glore event on the first Saturday in October. This year the event will have some extra COVID-19 adjustments, but they have also added new elements. Sarah Parks, the programming and events manager at St. Joseph Museums, spoke about the changes they have made for this fall. Some of our changes included adding social distancing marks and paths inside the museum. We have also installed many more hand sanitizer stations throughout the building, limiting cash transactions, and masks are mandatory for visitors and staff. If you're interested in creepy history, these two museums are a great stop for safe and exciting activities this fall. However, it can be difficult for families to decide what potential health risks are worth taking in the name of holiday tradition. In the time of a global pandemic, Halloween presents a bit of a moral dilemma for many homeowners who put on their own haunts and parents with children who would typically trick-or-treat. In cities like Los Angeles, trick-or-treating or trunk-or-treat events are specifically discouraged by city regulations. No such guidelines have been put into place yet for Kansas City, but it is likely they will come further into the season. Mark Allen, a homeowner in the KC Metro, has put on a home-built haunted house for the last 24 years. Their haunt is a staple of the Olathe area, and they frequently encourage food donations to local food banks and charities. 
In all of our years of setting up this Halloween display, we have never experienced anything remotely close. We have had to make changes due to snowstorms, but never anything like this, he says of the challenges his home haunt will face this year. With a haunted house that usually takes about three or four months of planning, it was tough for Alan and his family to imagine back in May that Halloween might be threatened ultimately. We thought all this would be over in a month or two. We were very surprised that we are still experiencing COVID-19 in September, Alan says. Their planning for a global pandemic Halloween is still in the works. We are considering whether to have a drive-by-only display for the month of October and with no trick-or-treaters on Halloween. We are also looking at options to give candy out while being socially distanced safely, if possible. As the fall progresses, we want to make sure that we balance our tradition with keeping our family, friends, and neighbors safe. As we get closer to Halloween, we will see where things stand before making a final decision. Alan stresses that some traditions are essential to keep running to keep spirits up in a turbulent year for families of all kinds. I think a lot of regular fall traditions are being upended this year. Going to the commercial haunted houses, fall festivals, etc. all seem to be out for this year. I think finding ways to safely continue family traditions are even more important given our current situation and its impact on everyone. I think the traditions give us a little bit of normalcy in a terrible year. For trick-or-treating, Kansas City parents seem to be divided. With many younger children going back to school in person and most fall festivities taking place outdoors, the risk level looks relatively low. However, the sheer amount of people that take part in trick-or-treating each year presents its own issues. Eric Schmidt, a father of two young children, explained that his feelings are not strong either way about the safety of taking his children out on Halloween. I don't think there is a ton of risk in it, but there could be. It just really depends. There are much worse activities going on every day, but there is definitely some risk. Megan Gunn, a mother of 13 and 16-year-old Halloween enthusiasts, says the spooky season will be different for their family, despite their love for the holiday. Both the kids and I don't feel comfortable going out and about trick-or-treating, so we will stay home and do a scavenger hunt in costumes, and possibly video chatting with their grandma. Chase Higgins, Kansas City native, says he will be allowing his daughter to trick-or-treat this year, but only if her costume has extra precautions built in. If we're able to trick her into wearing a mask by telling her it's part of the costume, we might be able to coddle her sensitive nature without too much of a fight because protecting her from a global pandemic should be fun, Higgins says. Despite the challenges COVID-19 has brought to Kansas City, the spirit of Halloween is alive and well in the metro area. While traditional trick-or-treating may still be up in the air for many families, there will be opportunities for scares throughout the city. Haunted attractions putting precautions in place is one thing, but expecting visitors to follow these rules is another. Even if guests pass the temperature test, wear a mask, and maintain social distance while at haunted venues, these attractions have no control over what people do prior to arriving for their night of fun. With bars still open, late-night haunts give adults the opportunity to come from a night of drinking, where there are multiple people around who are most likely unmasked if they are partaking in the drinking, to a haunted house surrounded by more people. The super-spreader potential is endless. As much as we would like to believe that these haunted houses are completely safe to attend because of the care establishments have carefully implemented, they are not. It is up to the patron to decide whether it is in their best interest to attend haunted houses and ghost tours during a global pandemic, a decision that makes Halloween fear a whole lot scarier. Once inside haunted houses, will attendees being chased have the self-control to remember to maintain distance between themselves and the group ahead of them? Who will stop if they don't? Perhaps the masked monster chasing them can also serve as chaperone and health cop. And all of this exists around the additional variables of whether or not children are involved. People must remember that when you choose to partake in interactive attractions this Halloween season, the sign you're traditionally used to seeing has become quite literal. Enter at your own risk. 
And now we're going to have a conversation with Lise Perlman. Lise uh, is a judge uh, and a former lawyer uh, who's written a number of giant deep dive uh, true crime sort of books uh, and uh, has a new one out called The Lindbergh Kidnapping, Suspect Number One, The Man Who Got Away, uh, which I, I, I thought it was going to be this giant, long, brutal, legally sort of read. Uh, and it's a real page turner of a thriller. Uh, and uh, you know what? Here, here's, here's our interview. Why don't you take a listen? Uh, Judge Perlman, welcome to the show. Uh, would you introduce yourself to our audience? Um, hello. Nice to be here. Um, here in, I'm in California. I'm a retired judge and author of several history books. So yeah, you've got this new book out, uh, one of your one of your many books, and it is called uh, The Lindbergh Kidnapping, Suspect Number One, The Man Who Got Away. Uh, it is a nearly 600-page-long page-turner, which I didn't see coming. I, I got into the book, and I was like, wow, there's a lot here, and it's from a trial judge, and I imagine that's going to be a pretty dense tome. And it was... Uh, is is very page turny. I was I was I was pleasantly surprised. Um, why? Uh, well, one why thing you... one, yeah. one thing your listeners might want to know is that it's only 350 pages of text and all short chapters. What I have done is supply them with about 100 photos and a uh, lots of endnotes and um, appendices so they can judge this case for themselves. Yeah, that was a surprise for me when I got about halfway through and was done with the book, and I was like, oh. I, I could have I could have done with more, <laughs> but yeah. Uh, so uh, why uh, why make the choice to dive into the Lindbergh case in 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 2020? <laughs> right. Well, that's a good question. What happened was uh, my first book, which I um, issued in uh, 2012, um, was a comparison of a case that came out of my um, hometown now for the last uh, 40 years of Oakland. Um, which was the Huey Newton Black Panther uh, death penalty trial. And I got interested in that because I was on the board of California Women Lawyers, and his, uh, one of his lawyers was a pioneering uh, woman um, named Faith Bender who did criminal defense work when women didn't do that, especially death penalty. And she won his release on appeal. So I was interested in her life story, and she thought this was, one of the most seminal cases in the entire 20th century. So I got started looking at how other his, how historians had treated it and how people who keep track of so-called trials of the century, of which there's generally one every two or three years, um, how they um, evaluated the Newton case, uh, which I decided actually was really important because what it did is it transformed the American jury from um, generally 12 white men as a jury of one fear to a diverse jury, including women and minorities. Um, so I looked, and the Newton case wasn't on anybody's top 40. Uh, and I thought that was odd. But what was on the top 40 on every single one was the Lindbergh uh, case. And what I did is I wrote a book that compared famous trials that were called the trial of century to the Newton case. And um, each one got a chapter, and then the Newton case got the middle of the book. And I found that the only one from the early part of the 20th century that still seemed unresolved, that there were people on both sides saying, one, that Houtman, who was convicted and executed, was guilty, and there were, and there were people who insisted, like his wife did for 60 years as a widow, um, that he was framed. And that puzzled me that it had never been resolved. 
And so I dug deeper into it because I couldn't even write a chapter without having some sense of where I would come down as a judge. Right. <laughs> and that got me interested in further, and back then, this is more than 10 years ago, I started writing a book about it, and I put it aside, uh, and I wrote three other books, and then I came back to it in 2017. Well, at least you know it's not going anywhere, and, and the only thing that's going to happen is that more information comes out, I suppose, so that's... <laughs> Well, it has, and that's one of the other things. Uh, one of the good sources that I have um, is a man named Michael Melsky, whose grandfather was a state trooper in New Jersey and used to tell tales about what the older troopers told him from the 30s because he came in in the 40s. And Melsky has spent every vacation for many years going through the 90,000 documents in the New Jersey State Police Museum and cataloging them, and he's come out with three volumes of the dark corners of the Lindbergh kidnapping. And the last one was the fall of 2019. So it's all very recent. What so was the biggest surprise? Oh, yeah. What was the biggest surprise to you uh, as you were uh, digging into this? <laughs> the biggest surprise? I think the biggest surprise. I guess you have like a decade long journey here with it. So like I, I imagine did. there are plenty um, of surprises along the way. <laughs> um, I concluded early on that Lindbergh should have been investigated as a prime suspect. Um, and I knew that would take a lot more research. And um, But I, it wasn't, so that was the big surprise, is that I realized that um, the focus away from him and the fact that he was put in charge of the investigation officially by the governor of New Jersey into a crime in his own home where there were only five people on the premises and the first responder suspected an insider. Um, and yet he was put in charge, and it was mishandled from the get-go uh, under his control. Uh, so that part, you know, intrigued me, um, and I realized pretty quickly looking at the trial of Houtman how poor a trial it was, how we have much better protection for defendants today than they did back then. Uh, there was no discovery. Uh, the police hid statements that some of the um, witnesses um, contradicted when they got on the stand, but the defense didn't know. They had said sworn differently before trial. Um, there were a lot of things about that that made me suspicious of it, but it didn't mean that Hauptman was necessarily innocent, and so I had to dig further. Um, and I went to Minnesota back then, 10 years ago, uh, to look at the Lindbergh collection there. Um, and then, as I said, I put it aside for a while, but I was deeply disturbed about Lindbergh's conduct. So, um, are there, are there takeaways? I started oh. <laughs> there. I started not knowing. You know, I wasn't. I wasn't assuming that that he should be a suspect. It, it came to me that way after looking at the evidence. Are Are there things from from the case that that you think we can use as takeaways today? Is there anything that you think people could Absolutely. learn in general? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, well, first of all, Lindbergh was a master of fake news. He and his attorney. Breckenridge from day one. Uh, one of the um, biggest pieces of fake news is the people's image of his son. His son disappeared at the age of 20 months. He was at his last checkup 33 inches tall with an oversized head and an oversized chest. The, the photos that Lindbergh released and the description he put in the poster was of his son at 12 months. Um, and it said 29 inches. It said he had curly hair when he actually just gotten his hair cut. Um, and it was extremely misleading. Um, and that was apparently deliberate. 
uh, they kept it out there that way, even after someone, and I think it was his grandmother, released to the press a photo that uh, was captioned, this is what he looked like when he disappeared, and it looked like a kid who's verging on three rather than two. That's uh, fascinating. <laughs> and I did have, actually, one of the things I did last summer was I uh, contacted a forensic artist, and she confirmed that. She said she looked at the pictures that were on the poster. She looked at the ones that are on the History Channel and Internet, the ones that people uh, are familiar with, the one that's on the cover of my book on the poster, and she said that she considered the photos that were released to the newspaper of what he really looked like, essentially, uh, were what, how he would have developed over the next eight months. Um, that he had the eyebrows, and had the hairline, and she opined it was the same child. So we have, you know, additional information on that. Fascinating. <laughs> uh, as a uh, as a judge, um, what do you think about uh, how things are going uh, with the judicial system these days? <laughs> Well, I think that we need a lot of reform in the judicial system. One of the things that I've noticed is how slow the process is and how it can be um, misused. Um, that if it takes, you know, justice delayed is justice denied. It's been spent many, many times, and yet we have a lot of delayed justice. Um, so that's something that needs to be addressed. Um, it, it, I think it's... You know, it's very evident when you see that Congress can't enforce its own subpoena um, because it would take too long. Um, there are some odd things going on that are part of an antiquated system. I uh, couldn't have said it better myself. Uh, Judge Perlman, thank you so much, and I hope you have a wonderful day. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. But I wanted to mention one thing else uh, that, you know, comparison to today, I think that... Uh, uh, Lindbergh was the, was the only man probably in the 1930s that if he had walked down Fifth Avenue and shot somebody in broad daylight, he could have gotten away with it. It was a <laughs> unique case given who he was and how admired he was that they suspended all the rules that they should have applied. That, uh, that, so that I, sounds about I right. Welcome <laughs> others to, to, read, to read the book, and thank you so much. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. <laughs> and that was Streetwise, the podcast extension of The Pitch from Kansas City. Thank you so much for listening. We're at thepitchkc.com. Please come check out all the excellent work we're doing. You can read the latest issue of the magazine in PDF format there, or you can find it on the streets of KC if you're out there. Uh, please let us know what you think of the show. Please interact with our work online. Uh, if you have a few bucks to toss our way, every little bit helps. We are in the process of putting together... Uh, the, the final best of KC 2020 magazine and uh, events, uh, those will all be coming up uh, soon. So uh, pay attention. Uh, we will we'll be announcing them here. We'll be announcing them online. There's a bunch of cool stuff. We have multiple events this year. We have so much going on. So uh, thank you for listening. Thank you for being a part of this. Uh, kitchen, we'll make it. Easy.